Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via ACAST supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Welcome back to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. In today's episode, I'm talking again to Dr. Catherine Mannix, our palliative care doctor and the author of two fabulous books, With the End in Mind and Listen. Today we're going to talk about where to die. Should that be in a hospice, a care home, hospital or at home? Welcome back, Catherine Mannix. We're going to talk today about a subject that became very close to my heart, as you know, last year, which is where to die. Now, obviously not everyone gets the choice, but when there is a choice, it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's either kind of hospital, hospice or home. With my father, he was in hospital. He was very clear that he wanted to go home. He did go home and he died at home. With my mum last year, Catherine, as you may remember, she was in a care home and I became really quite obsessed with whether that was the best place for her to be, which wasn't really helped by the fact that she was asking hourly to go home. And I've since discovered that this is a conundrum for a lot of people, really. So first of all, welcome back. And secondly, I mean, those are the main choices, really, aren't they? Home, hospice or hospital. I haven't missed one out. No, I think you're right, except that we probably need to think about where we put care homes in that mix as well, because in 2022, a fifth of deaths in England and Wales from from the records office were in a care home, a residential care of some sort. And that's because, of course, for a lot of older, very frail people, that is where their home is. Mm. But sometimes it's not their home. It's a place they've temporarily gone to live, perhaps whilst they're recuperating from a hospital admission or something like that. So I think what we're talking about is where will we find the care when a person is declining towards death? And what's more important to them, the immediacy of the availability of care or the familiarity of the circumstances in which they're cared for? Because it's hard to have both. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. You and I had a really helpful chat last year when I was trying to think about what to do. And I think it's really important for anyone listening that there often isn't an absolutely right or wrong answer. 
if I talk about some of the things that I had to think about, that may help listeners to focus in on what might matter. And some of the things that I discovered after talking to you, while we were thinking about what my mother's needs were. And in your experience, what might those needs be at end of life? Towards the end of people's lives, generally, people are really tired, aren't they? One of the the things we know about the approach of the end of life, for whatever reason, extreme old age or a progressive illness or whatever, is that people are more tired, they're less able to do things for themselves, they need far more rest. And that means that they need help and support. And to start off with, that's only a little bit of help and support. But as time goes by, many people no longer get out of a chair or even stay in bed and they may need help to wash, keep themselves fresh and feeling fresh. They may be unable to cook. They might might even find it difficult to use a fork or a knife and fork to feed themselves. So there's this creeping increase in the need for care and attention just to keep the person clean, safe, uh, as fed as they feel inclined to be. And not everybody has a big appetite towards the end of their life. And some people feel safer if the help is there immediately they need it. So they may be people who have family who live with them. They may be people who go and live with their family, or they may be people who don't have that option. And for them, residential care is probably the closest alternative to that, that they have their own space, they can make a place where they feel at home, and there are staff around them to help. The tricky thing is that we feel a kind of obligation to promise our dying relatives or our increasingly frail relatives that we won't let them be sent away from their homes. And we can find that a very, very difficult promise to come through on if they are very, very needy in terms of the amount of care and support they need. And that goes on for a very long time. And it's not that we don't love them enough to do it. It's that our lives have demands in them as well as the demands of that person's care. And it can be absolutely exhausting and it can become impossible to continue to give that level of care and attention without becoming sick ourselves or not being able to do the other things, care for other members of the family or fulfil our job or whatever that we also need to do. I think the other thing that's really important, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that sometimes we might underestimate what we need and the help that we need because we don't know how long someone has Mm. got. And if they're going to need help with going to the toilet or incontinence pants, is that something you're going to be prepared to do as a family member? So I think the care, whatever that might look like, is really important about where it's easiest to get that sorted something some people might not sort of think about and it might not end up being relevant but how important are things like the equipment around you so that's a really important consideration so let's think about people's skin you and I sitting as we are now we're sitting quite still we're paying each other attention we don't look as though we're moving but actually subtly we're shifting on our seats every now and again and we're shifting the point at which the bones 
in our pelvis are pressing on the skin and through the skin into the cushion that we're sitting on. And we're gradually just slightly adjusting that position all of the time because our muscles can do that. We're strong enough to do that. We don't even think about doing that. As a person becomes more and more tired, as their muscles become more and more weary towards the very end of life, they don't make those tiny adjustments in their position. So if they're sitting or they're lying down, whichever part of their skin is taking the pressure of the weight of their body between the bones on the inside and the cushions or the mattress or the pillows on the outside is being nipped and its blood supply is being temporarily interrupted. And that doesn't have to happen for very long without a a shift before the skin begins to become red and then sore and then eventually will break as what we call a pressure sore. And they are incredibly uncomfortable to to put up with that. That feeling of the skin being sore, the skin being broken, can be the most overwhelming symptom towards the end of a person's life. When a person is no longer able to just shift a tiny bit for themselves, let alone get themselves up and out of bed, they need two things. They need help to move so the skin that's under pressure is shifted every now and again and they need some kind of pressure relieving support underneath their body whether they're sitting on it or lying on it that reduces the pressure and therefore allows that shifting of the body to be more delayed because we used to have to turn people really frequently in hospital Mm -hmm. towards the end of life. Sometimes the nurses would be turning a person on a conventional mattress every 10 minutes and that disturbs them. It's uncomfortable. It takes away their autonomy, their ability to just be able to sleep and rest. So being able to offer something that relieves the pressure, there are special mattresses you can get, there are special beds that you can get, some very expensive beds that almost float the person on a cushion of air beneath a sheet. And you never need to adjust that person's position because all of their weight is distributed across all of the skin underneath them. And some intensive care units will use beds like that. So we're thinking all of the time of that kind of equation between how pressure relieving the surface is that we can provide for the person to sit or lie on and how frequently because of that we still need to move them so that their skin is looked after and stays safe and comfortable and intact. And I presume if you're in a hospital or hospice, they they have those special beds, but at yes, home you they wouldn't. Do. But you can contact your, I never remember if they're called community nurse or district nurses now, which is it? Well, we call them district nurses, don't we? I think they they call themselves the community nursing service these days. And they can access a whole heap of helpful bits of kit for us at home. And that's immensely helpful and to do that they usually need to come in and do an assessment first of all and see what's going on so there are some very simple things like you can get um, a rail that tucks in between the bottom part of the bed and the mattress above it and provides a handrail on one or both sides of the bed so a person who can't quite sit up under their own steam anymore has got a grab rail on one side or both sides and using that they can shift themselves sit themselves up 
Little things like that, they're not huge structural changes in the room. You're still in your same bed, but you've got these extra little things that you can use. The nurses can provide additional padding, sheepskin and other uh, pressure relieving things to put in the bed underneath the person. The places that very often feel the pressure are whichever part of your foot is resting on the bed. So it might be the back of your heel or it might be those knobbly bones that stick out either side of your ankle. If you're sitting a lot, then it's that part of your pelvis that points down just below where your jeans pockets would be if you were wearing Mm. a pair of jeans, the back pockets on your jeans. Or if you've lost a lot of weight, then the the processes that stick out at the back of the spine, the spinous processes, they can rest against a pillow that feels very innocent and comfortable, but it's like a, a little point of pressure between bone and pillow that can over time become very sore. So the nurses coming in can see what sort of position this person likes to be in for resting, what position they like to be in to sit up and take notice of the family or to maybe have the small meals that they still fancy eating or a cup of tea or whatever. And then they can give advice about the sorts of help that they can give. So fantastic resources available and enormous expertise on the part of community nurses to be able to assess and advise and order those for us. And the NHS provides them. Yes, they do. I would say, though, our experience was that, number one, we were originally told that my mum could get hospital bed within four hours. But that wasn't the reality. The reality was we had to wait for the community nurses to come round. And then there had to be a certain criteria that was fulfilled. And that was quite a surprise to me. That a lot of things took longer than I expected. And they weren't quite as straightforward as I'd been led to believe. So never presume and try and give yourself as much time as you can. You're and ask right. Lots of questions. And, and, and it is hard, isn't it? Because we don't know what we don't know. And that nursing expertise It really is expert. I'm a doctor. I was a palliative care doctor for 30 years. I don't have that expertise because I'm not a nurse and I don't have their expertise. Another way the assessment can happen, and this is another important thing people might not be aware of, is if you're trying to get somebody home or even to a care home that's closer to home from hospital, Mm -hmm. then there's usually a discharge liaison team. Again, expert nurses And they will help with that translation of an assessment of the person and their needs for mobility, skin protection, all the rest of it in their bed in hospital. And what kind of equipment needs to be in place in the place they're going to, whether that's their home, home of friends or family or a residential nursing home care of some sort. They'll do that assessment and then talk to the community nursing service for home or for residential care because residential care doesn't include nursing care or they'll talk to the nurse manager of a nursing home to say look these are the bits of kit that are going to be needed so that the community nurses can order them for home or for residential care or the nursing home can order them for nursing home care and sometimes that frustrates families because we're trying to get mum home and the window seems to be closing she's more frail every day And we've got to wait 24, 48 hours to get the right equipment in place. It feels so frustrating. But you actually say, well, no, no, we're just going to take her home. Of, Of course you can. And they'll be surrounded by your love and devotion. But they'll have 24 or 48 hours 
of potentially skin disrupting discomfort that could be the beginning of a very difficult period for them if they survive any length of time. So it's always trying to find that balance between being in the place that the person wants to be, getting the best care that they can possibly have. And it's a tension, isn't it, all of the time. It's kind of playing one thing off against the other. Which best benefits can we maximise and how can we minimise the difficulties at the same time? easy to talk about these things but when you're actually in it you can't just pick a sort of dying person up and move them around sort of willy-nilly you have to do it with great care as you should and also you know if you want to bring them home and want to get a hospital bed in situ you do need to think about things like access you know can you clear a downstairs room for them because hospital bed is quite a big thing and I would imagine it's quite difficult to get up most people's stairs all the people I know that have done that it's they've always sort of given over a downstairs room if it's a house And again, you don't know how long that's going to be. So there's quite a lot of things to think about. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you should start with the person who's dying and what their needs Mm. are rather than anyone else and their kind of everyday care. So if you're going to move them from a place where they have care, you need to get care in place. And one of the things we found out if I moved her to my house, we would have to get her private care. And that wasn't straightforward. And again, these are all things I kind of had to find out at speed. So moving her from a residential home where she had 24-hour care to here where it would have all fallen on me, or if you're the listener wondering, it would all fall on you and your family. These are things to think about, aren't they? Because it's the actual impact of it minute by minute, day to day, possibly week to week, can be quite substantial. Yeah, and it's so important to think about that. So we can get distracted by the equipment, but also really importantly, what you're moving on to talk about now is I'm going to use the expression, the burden of the care. And I don't mean that it's burdensome in a way that we resent. It simply is an activity that is going to take on huge proportions for us at home in terms of being able to help this person to be comfortable in their bed, to be fed, to be clean, Are they able still to be continent of urine? Are they able still to be continent of feces? How much laundry is it going to generate if they've got wounds that bleed or bags that leak or they're incontinent from time to time and it's not all caught on an incontinence pad or an incontinence pants? Have you got enough bedding to keep replacing the bedding that you're using? Do they need to have their meals particularly liquidised? You can spend hours preparing the most gorgeous morsel and they just don't feel like it and it's heartbreaking. Families get very agitated when their person doesn't want to eat and yet losing appetite is a very normal part of the end of life. They're not Mm. dying because they're not eating. They're not eating because they're they're dying. dying and they no longer have that sense of appetite. So. The person or the people who are taking on the care need to know that they can offer that for 24 hours if necessary in every day. And that is not a a sensible ask of one individual. And it's possibly not a sensible ask even of three or four or five individuals with a really tight rotor and everybody's doing their best. There will be days when people just feel 
overwhelmed by that. So what are the other parts of care that we can get? Well, it depends a little bit on the way the person's physical health needs are assessed. There are different budgets that additional health can come out of, depending on how close to death the person is and whether their illness is a is a progressive physical illness. So there are some NHS budgets that might provide for additional care, but that would probably be people popping in to help with giving tablets or to help with moving the person in bed. It won't be round the clock person in the house giving the care. So if you want to have a carer in the house the moment you need them, then very often that means having to pay for private agency carers. Now again, community nursing teams are aware of the agencies and sometimes a person's needs are such that they need that additional nursing care and the NHS budget will meet it. But very often anything additional to that will need to be funded by the person or by their families and not everybody has the means to pay for that. There are also some charities that help with these kinds of things. So one of the things that can really make or break how successful we are at looking after a person while they're dying is whether we're able to get our own sleep at some point in each 24 hours, usually at night. And so Marie Curie, the charity, can offer somebody who will come and sit in your house, either in the room with the sick person or in a room nearby where they can hear them and they can pop in every now and again to see how they're doing, to help them to move, to give them drinks, to soothe them if they're uncomfortable, to call you if that's what needs to happen, but to give you the confidence to go to bed and get a few hours unbroken sleep before you take up the burden of care again on the following day. And Marie Curie will provide that at the invitation of the community nursing service at no charge to the family. The Marie Curie charity and the community nursing service pay half each. And that's regardless of the diagnosis of the person. It used to be a cancer only service, but it isn't that anymore. So again, it's the community nursing service, the district nurses who will know what are the agencies that are available which what can be provided free of charge through the NHS, what local charities or national charities might be able to provide, and what they can recommend to you, but you will have to pay for in addition to that. I think it might be worth mentioning where you live, because my experience, and I'm, my experience, was even with that hospice at home, which I'll talk about um, a bit more in a moment, it was when my dad died, we died very quickly but um towards the end we did have hospice home care and it was it would have been wraparound in the event we didn't need it but here when I contacted my local hospice they said that they couldn't really guarantee anyone come around to the house but they could offer phone support which which wasn't really what I needed or wanted I was quite shocked by that and so I would say if you have a loved one that's dying I think it's quite difficult to make these preemptive phone calls but I think it's really worth it if you can't do them to get someone else to do them, to find out what's actually available where you live. Because quite a lot of the places that you've mentioned, when I contacted them, even the end of life doulas, there was just simply no one near where I lived. 
So that kind of didn't help with the feeling of isolation. And I know that's not always the case. Lots of experiences are very different. But I think there is a lot to be said for research. (laughs) And the moment you think this might be happening, and this is what I say to all my friends now, find out what's available to you, because there's always going to be things that curveballs that you didn't expect. Do you think that's sensible advice? I think it's really good advice. The difficulty, as I'm sure you've found, is that there isn't a really good central point of information, is there, to find out what all of those other additional not NHS services might be for your locality. And there are now some areas that are starting to set up that kind of database and information for residents of particular areas. And sometimes, particularly for some of the the voluntary and charity services, it's simply that there isn't a person who's available to get to you in the postcode that you Mm. live in. So you talked about end-of-life doulas, and the variety now of trained lay people. These are not nurses, they're not doctors, they are ordinary people who, who may have had a career in care but but they may very well have been you know somebody in HR or I I met a guy who used to be a riveter was his job and he started volunteering for end-of-life companionship and done some training about that and so end-of-life doula UK is one of those soul midwives is another one of those they've got websites you can go and look them up and although they do have some people over most of the UK the organisations are not yet big enough to have somebody everywhere always available and they make a very big commitment to their clients to be able to be available to them, which once they've taken somebody on means that they don't take other people on in order to be able to see through their commitment. So doing your homework early is a really, really good idea. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I feel we've talked a lot about home and I think most people, if asked, they would say they want to die at home. That's not always practical. But when might it really sort of would say to someone, I really don't think it's a good idea, they need to move to a hospice or, for example, if they're on oxygen, can you do that at home? Yeah, you can give oxygen at home and oxygen can be provided in cylinders or if you've got the space, you can have a a machine that's called an, an oxygen concentrator. It's about the size of a... A bedside cabinet but it just takes room air and concentrates the oxygen in it so you can do that I, I guess there are there are two reasons why a person might be dying in hospital one is that they went into hospital and while they were in hospital it became apparent that they had started dying and now the question is do we stay in hospital or do we try to get out of hospital to another place and what is the other place you'd like to be in and the other is a person who's at home whose needs can only be met in a hospital. And that might be because there's still potential for this person to recover and they want to make the most of that potential, even if they die trying. They want to be able to have antibiotics by injection intravenously rather than being limited only to swallowing antibiotic medicine or tablets at home for example, or they might need the attention of an intensive care unit with the outside possibility that their life might be saved. And two people in exactly that same situation, one might say, yes, I want any treatment that the hospital thinks might be helpful for me, I want to have that. And another person who looks as though they're in exactly the same situation might say, do you know what, I've had enough now. I know that hospital might be able to eke out my life for a few more days or weeks or months but I'd rather be at home I'd rather be here and just let it happen now I'm, I'm, I'm ready for that to happen to me so this isn't just a medical decision it's a decision to be made with and alongside and involving the really sick person and sometimes a person's too sick to have that conversation at that point which is why you and I have talked so much in the past about how important it is that we've talked about what matters most to us while we're well. Because one of the things that's really interesting when you come to try and make those decisions at a crisis point is how everybody in the family knows what mum would want and everybody's opinion is different. And Mm. that's because actually they've never had the opportunity to just sit down and work out what matters most to a person. So if what matters most to a person is, I don't care how much suffering there is, I don't care how hard it is, I want to live for as absolutely long as possible. Another person might say, I've had enough of discomfort and being joggled about and having needles stuck in my arm for treatment. I don't want to go to hospital anymore. And if that means that I die that time, that's okay by me. So it's really important that we've had those conversations. But if you're in hospital, 
and you are dying, well, one of the things that is becoming clear is that hospitals aren't always great at recognising that the person is dying. They're still busy treating their heart failure and then measuring what's happening to their heart, but might not actually be standing back and saying, you know what, this person now is so sick that dying is a possible outcome here. I wonder whether they realise that. I wonder whether their family realise that. We need to have that conversation together. Because when we have that conversation together, sometimes the person will say, or sometimes the family will say, if the person isn't sick enough, oh, we've talked about this possibility. And what dad said he would want if that ever happened was, he wouldn't want lots more treatment. He'd want to make sure that my brother could visit from Australia, but that's the only thing he would really want to wait for. We could never guess those things, could we? They have to be conversations we have with patients and with families. So if a person is dying in hospital and what matters most to them is their family, can we get them to a place where they can live with their family? Maybe we can, but if we can't, what can we do to make the room that they are now in, which might not be a single room, a space that their family feels welcome in? Can we reduce the visiting restrictions? Can we allow photographs of the family to be around them? Can we organise WhatsApp calls so that they can hear their grandchildren talking, even if they're too tired to respond? Do you think people, in your experience, know where they are when they die? Most people, by the time they they are doing their active dying, have lost consciousness. It's unusual for people to be fully awake as they are dying. It does happen sometimes, but it's unusual. So most people will have lost consciousness, but they'll know where they are until that point, unless their illness is actually influencing their mind or their brain. So perhaps if they've got dementia and they've stopped recognising where they are and people around them, or if they've been relatively sharp mentally, but they become delirious because of sepsis or something like that as they're dying, they may find it more difficult to recognise. But there's more than just what we can see that makes us feel safe. And one of the things that's really important in terms of how we're wired emotionally is how things sound and how things smell. So actually being able to have the right sounds around a person, the kind of noise that they appreciate. So when I'm dying, I do not want young nurses playing their music on the radio at me. I would like silence or talk radio, Radio 4 or something like that. But my husband will have a particular set of classical music. He's probably written his playlist because what he likes and what brings him comfort is very different from what I like and what brings me comfort. Having the right smells around you, something that's familiar and comforting and nice and not just those kind of antiseptic and stinky smells that unfortunately will be part of hospital experience as well. What can we do around that person so we create for them a really peaceful environment? Can they comfortably wear uh, earphones to listen to their favourite sort of music so that it doesn't disturb the other patients but they have the pleasure of it? And then the other thing you're saying, well, do people know where they are? We've got to give them the very best chance of being able to communicate. So if they wear hearing aids, they need to be looked after with their hearing aids in, with the batteries in the right way round, charged up, switched on. If you're lying a person 
with their face to the pillow, you might want to take the hearing aid out on that side so that it doesn't press into their ear and give them a pressure sore in their ear. Keep their glasses on, keep their glasses clean, help them to be able to see and to hear to the best of their ability so that they're able to be as autonomous as they can be and have the dignity of that all during their dying. That's some really good practical advice that people might not think about when somebody's dying. In terms of a hospice, I used to be terrified of hospices. I don't know why, <laughs> but then I, I went to them because I loved were dying and I kind of got used to them. Why would you choose a hospice if you have the choice over hospital or home? What can it give you? Is it like a halfway house? Let's talk about what hospices are and what they aren't. Hospices are not nursing homes for dying people. If what you need is tender, loving, nursing care as you die and you don't have any additional special needs, you can do that in a nursing home. Hospices are the intensive care units of palliative care. They are staffed by specialists and we use them as our beds for helping people whose symptoms can't be properly addressed by the rest of the healthcare system. So that might be about control of difficult physical symptoms like pain or breathlessness or bowel problems or nausea or itch, all, all sorts of things that you don't think of as very serious symptoms, but actually can really, really impoverish somebody's quality of life unless they're properly addressed physical symptoms like that but also emotional symptoms people who are absolutely desperately afraid or sad or they're anticipatory grieving for themselves is, is just interfering with their ability to en enjoy the time that's left or family dynamics in a particular family are so strained and difficult that that's adding to the emotional burden of the person and the people around them so generally, hospices are used for symptom management for people whose illnesses are not curable, because obviously the best way to get rid of a symptom is to cure the illness that's causing mm -hmm. it, right? So generally, hospices will look after people who've got fairly far advanced illness, but you're not obliged to die if you go into a hospice. You're not usually admitted to a hospice be just because you're simply dying. It's because you're reaching the end of your life in a way that isn't comfortable enough for it to be able to proceed peacefully in the place where you were. And usually we will try and get people in, sort their symptoms out and get them back to the place that they wanted to be. People on their first admission to a hospice are more likely to go home than to die there. So that's a really important statistic because mm -hmm. they're coming in for a symptom to be sorted out. But quite often what will happen is the person will be in and out and in and out. And over that period of time, they might get to know the team very well. And it might be, therefore, that the last time they come in, we maybe could have got them home. But they're so close to the end of life now and they feel confident with us and we're able to create that peaceful space around a bed in a hospice that is very difficult to create in a hospital that they say, oh, well, let's just stay here now. It's not very much longer, just stay. So that is different from choosing to go to a hospice to die. About 5% of deaths in the UK will be in a hospice because that that's all the beds we've got. 
So we, if we used every bed for a person who's going to die sometime in the next two, three, four, five, six weeks, then say that person stays for six weeks, that's three people whose symptoms could have been solved in a 10-day admission and got home again who couldn't have their symptoms solved because somebody who was only dying was in that bed. Mm. So where do most people die? Well, it's it used to be hospital and gradually we're bringing that down. So about 50% or in fact just a bit less now of deaths will be in hospital, but just over half will be either at home or in a care home and then 5%-ish in a hospice. So... Hospice is there as a facility to help us to be as well as we can be. And that might include care at the very end of our lives, but we shouldn't make that assumption. And most of us need to be thinking about if we're going to live into older age, as most of us are, where are we going to live to get the care we need as our bodies start to get weary, sometimes years before we're actually going to die? So we need to be thinking about what kind of residential care would suit us, whereabouts in the country we would want to be, who are the people we would want to be closest to, thinking about the travelling distance for the people who matter most to us, people very, very attached to their homes, but they're living in lonely isolation somewhere in the Lake District and the rest of the family is, I don't know, in, in London and Cornwall. That's incredibly difficult visiting distances for the families. And yet this person is so attached to the home that they perhaps brought all those children up in. So there are some really important, tender, challenging conversations that families need to be able to have. Mum, I cannot promise you that I will be able to live with you and look after you while you're dying if you want to stay in this house in the Lake District and I've got my job and my kids in Cornwall. I can't make you that promise. If you would like to come and live closer to us in Cornwall, we'll stand a very much better chance of being able to be with you and alongside you and loving you over that time. But sometimes we have difficult choices to make and it hasn't got to just be the people who would do the caring who have to be selfless. The person who needs the care might have to think about being selfless too. Of course, we go back to that thing, which is people don't really know. And also when the end is very close, especially once they have a driver in, which we'll talk about in a minute, they're not conscious. So in a way, towards the very, very end, all of this stuff is largely academic, I think, because if that person is on morphine and midazolam, they're not really going to know who's around them or where they are. So those sort of like the sort of pre-death stage, if you like, it's quite important to think about all those things. And you're absolutely right. I think also don't underestimate, I wanted to say, like in a hospice in a hospital, if you're able to have your loved one there, you do have the support of highly trained people. And for some people that can become really important, I think, because someone dying, especially if you've never been with a dying person, I hesitate to say it can be scary because I think you, we've done so much to try and not make it scary. Some people really like that support network, don't they, around them? I think that it's really, really important that wherever the person is dying, the people who love them 
have access to support from people who are familiar with dying, whether that's in hospital, in hospice, or at home. Because it doesn't matter how much you know about dying, I discovered, sitting at the bedside of my dying grandmother, watching her doing the breathing patterns of unconsciousness that I have described to so many people for so many years, this breathing that isn't uncomfortable for this person, but it's noisy and it's weird and it shows us how deeply unconscious they are. Okay, so I know all that. I'm a consultant in palliative medicine. I'm sitting beside a hospital bed in the middle of the night and my nana is breathing like that and I'm trying to work out whether she's trying to tell me something or whether she's breathless or whether she's groaning, even though the other half of my brain absolutely knows that this is the breathing pattern of complete unconsciousness that says this person is, you know, beyond being able to feel that level of distress. So I needed a me, or I needed a person like she had been, because she was familiar with dying, because she'd looked after lots of dying people when she was a young woman in the early part of the 20th century, before dying got transferred off to hospital all the time. So it doesn't need to be a medical person or a nursing person alongside us, but we do need a person who's experienced and wise alongside us. Because you talked before about how, how desperate it can feel towards the very end. And the desperation very often isn't because we think the person is suffering terribly, it's because we're not really quite sure, because we haven't seen this before, is this normal? Am I missing anything? Should I be doing something else right now? Is this the time when I should be calling the rest of the family? Or will I have sent for them too soon? But what if I don't send for them soon enough? All of that stuff, because we're not familiar with it, that plays on our minds and makes it much, much more uncomfortable for us as the caregivers, there's a nurse who can come along and say, oh yes, she's, she looks really relaxed, you're doing great, that's absolutely fantastic. Is your brother nearly here yet? Or if you're at home, there's a Marie Curie sitter with you, or the, the carer has popped in from the agency, or the district nurse is calling, and they're able to say, oh, this is absolutely normal, this is absolutely fine, but also able to say, oh actually, hang on, no, this isn't quite right, I think she might be a bit uncomfortable here, we need to think about an extra dose of her comfort drugs to just help her to feel settled again now. And it's the reassurance, isn't it, of having that wise, experienced, calm, not emotionally engaged in this person. They can be mm. kind, but they don't love this person like you love this person. And so they're able to bring their wisdom and experience without all of that emotional frazzle going on at the same time. So we need experienced people about the end of life. And you're going to become one of those because you've been courageous enough to be there up close and personal on several occasions. People who know you, your friends, can be able to ring you and say, Annalisa, this is happening. And you'll be able to hear it and process it and say, oh, you know, do you know what? That sounds completely normal. That sounds like the sort of thing that usually happens. Or, mm, do you know what? I'm not really sure about that. That sounds like the sort of thing that you should really ask the district nursing service or the GP about, because that doesn't sound quite normal to me. I could be wrong, but I would check it out. 
decides who goes into a hospice? So hospices take referrals just like hospitals do. From GPs. So GP, district nurse, a hospital team. I used to work in a hospital palliative care team. So sometimes I'd phone the hospice and say, we need a hospice bed to sort out this person's pain. I'm guessing it's going to be maybe a three to five day admission. We can get them back into the hospital or get them home from there. And then the hospice will usually have more requests than they've got beds for. So they then have to prioritise. So say I'd asked for one of my hospital patients to be given a hospice bed because they were on a, you know, I don't know, maybe a busy surgical ward and there were lots of things to solve and no soothing space to do the solving and trickiness with using unusual sorts of painkillers, you know, specialist high-end palliative care stuff. Please, can you take this patient and do that over the next few days? And they said, well, we will if we can, but actually you've got a patient who's a similar age and a similar family structure to this person, but they are at home and there isn't a nurse with a drug trolley and a drug cupboard. So actually, we're going to prioritise the person who is at home, not because your patient doesn't need us, but because this other patient needs us more. So every day, hospices run admissions meetings where they look at the number of beds they've got available and the number of requests they've got for a person to use those beds and say yes to some and sadly, therefore, have to say no to others. We haven't got enough hospice beds yet around the country. And of course, hospices themselves, you t- you touched on hospice at home before, there are two sorts of hospices. We think of hospices as buildings, and usually they are like a kind of nursing home, but with extra specialist staff who are all specialists in palliative care. Um, but in some places, that's not the right model. In really rural areas, everybody's miles from the patient if the patient gets taken to our hospice that's in the big town for a massive rural area and that's very often where we have hospice at home instead where the nurses the doctors the physios and ot's the chaplains and social workers all those specialists they will go and visit the person and their bed is their bed in their house or their bed in their care home and the specialist palliative care is traveling to them rather than them being in a building that's staffed by specialists so there are examples of that in rural communities in Scotland, in Cumbria and the Lake District, in parts of Yorkshire, rural Northumberland. There are places down in the southwest in Cornwall and Devon and places scattered all around the country. So when people are doing their homework, finding out what there is, when they find the name of a hospice, they then need to find out from that hospice whether all of their care is beds in a particular building or whether any of their care is actually outreach so that they can get to you and support you where you are instead. Yes, back to do your research. Mm. You mentioned drugs, and I think this is something we need to talk about because, as discussed, death isn't always straightforward or peaceful, and there's quite a psychological aspect to death in my very, very small experience, which can be quite upsetting. The person who's dying can be seem in distress there's quite a lot of plucking of the air which is such a weird phenomena but I believe is something that often happens in people that are dying do we know why they do that plucking the air so a really interesting thing so let's let's just have a little think about some of the things that we see as people are dying so there's an overarching pattern of just getting more tired of sleeping more of dipping in and out of sleep 
are gradually becoming unconscious rather than just asleep, but still waking up from time to time and then eventually just being unconscious all of the time. But during those changes, another thing that can happen is that the person doesn't get quite back to fully awake. And the mental state that they're in is actually something that we're all really familiar with, although we've probably never thought about it before. You know, when you're in a really, really deep sleep and the alarm clock goes off mm-hmm. and there's a period of being still asleep, but the noise of the alarm clock becomes a noise that's in the dream. So you're in your dream somewhere, there are fire bells or a burglar alarm going off or the car alarm or you've lost your car keys. And you make sense of it in the dream. And then gradually, because of the noise, you start to wake up a bit more. And now, okay, no, hang on. It's not a car alarm. It's Oh, it's the blooming alarm clock. And there's a staged change from completely unaware, but incorporating this outside thing that's real, the noise, but misinterpreting it. And then there's coming back towards awareness and starting to realize that the noise isn't in your dream the noise is in real life but you're not quite sure where you are and then gradually you come back to full awakeness and it's the alarm clock and you can turn it off that in between state is a state that some people get stuck in for short or longer periods of time when they're coming backwards and forwards between awakeness and unconsciousness What we see looks disconcerting to us because they are reaching for things, they're touching things, they're talking to people, they're stroking pets that we can't see. And we think that they're experiencing something that is frightening and weird and awful. When people who've been like that fully wake up afterwards, which some of them sometimes do, they'll tell us about the the vivid dreams they've had or how lovely it was. But because it looked weird to us, we superimposed it being frightening because we were frightened. Now, sometimes people are dreaming things that are unpleasant and then they are frightened and helping them to become more awake and reorientate is one of the ways we can help them. But if people are persistently frightened and we can't waken them enough to help them to calm themselves or they're frightened even when they're awake, then we need to think about how do we help this person to be calm. And sometimes we can do that with music and massage and relaxation oils and those sorts of things. And we try to resist using drugs because the more you give drugs that sedate people, the harder it is for them to actually reorientate to reality and calm themselves. But sometimes we do need to use drugs to help a person to get to a state of peaceful sleep instead of agitated in betweenness. And we always try to use the lowest possible dose that we can. And the drugs that we use, because a person by this stage often isn't awake enough to swallow, would usually be drugs either that we give by injection or that they can absorb by them being against the skin on the inside of their cheek or under their tongue. Because the blood vessels in the mouth will absorb things very quickly. So it's usually a drug called midazolam. It's a relative of diazepam of Valium. Benzodiazepine, it's a drug that tranquilizes and causes sleep. And remember, tranquilizer means peaceful maker. And what we're trying to do isn't to sedate the person. It's to relax the person to the point where they can become 
comfortable. So some people can go into a kind of semi-awake, smiley, relaxed state with the right amount of that drug. And some people stay agitated and furrowed brown, clearly in a place that's unhappy inside their own brains until we give them enough that they are fully rendered, not just relaxed, but, but asleep and unconscious. But we're always trying to use the smallest dose possible. So when we're trying to help a person to be asleep and relaxed, we use a drug that does that. We don't use a different drug that's for something else. So the other drug we need to talk about is morphine and its cousins, diamorphine and oxycodone and fentanyl. There's a variety of drugs that are all opioid drugs. They all work on the same receptors in our brain and they are painkillers. These drugs in excess are sedative and we're not trying to use them as sedatives. We're trying to use just the dose that will take the pain away. I had knee surgery a couple of years ago. Uh, if I'd had my knee surgery yesterday and I'd taken 10 milligrams of morphine this morning, then I could be talking to you now and have a comfortable knee. And if I hadn't taken my 10 milligrams of morphine, I'd be finding it difficult to concentrate on talking to you because my knee would be so sore because a surgeon cut it open yesterday and it's swollen and it's red and it's sore and I've got a surgical scar as well. If you took 10 milligrams of morphine and you hadn't had surgery, you would just go to sleep. It would sedate you because there would be no pain for the drug to work on. So it would work on the next thing that it can do, which is make you sleepy. So towards the end of life, sometimes people have symptoms, not of dying, which doesn't cause pain, but of the illness that they're dying from. And they've been on one of those opioid drugs to keep them comfortable. And they've been comfortable enough to be up and about, walking, talking, eating, being normal, but with well-controlled pain. As they become gradually more sleepy, less awake, more unconscious, it's harder and harder for them to keep swallowing the drug that keeps their pain away. And if they don't keep swallowing the drug that takes their pain away, their pain comes back. So we need to find a different way to give that same dose, just the dose that takes the pain away. And that's when we very often move from swallowing it to injecting it. And rather than having to give injections every few hours, we put the whole day's dose into a syringe and put it into one of those little syringe pumps, a syringe driver. And the dose in there is the equivalent to what the person was taking when they were up and about and comfortable and walking and talking. Now they're becoming unconscious because they are dying. They're not becoming unconscious because of the drug in the syringe driver. The drug in the syringe driver is only doing the job that it did when they were fully awake, which is taking their pain away. The problem is that usually we don't become unable to swallow our medicines until very, very late in the illness, maybe two or three days before the very end of life. So people have started to associate, and the Daily Mail has not been helpful, the Daily Mail has run stories that say, once the syringe driver starts, you'll be dead within 72 hours. And that is possibly a true relationship in that it possibly is about 72 hours before a person dies that they're not able to swallow anymore so they need a syringe driver but they're not dying because they have a syringe driver they're dying comfortably because the syringe driver is helping their symptoms not to interfere as they're dying so it's really important that patients and families aren't afraid 
of this syringe driver. All it's doing is either delivering drugs that you already needed, we already knew the dose and that's the dose we'll give you, or as you're dying, some new things have started to happen, like you started to get a bit nauseated and you can't keep the nausea tablets down, or you've started to feel a little bit less easy in your breathing, or we want to give you something to help your breathlessness to subside, or as we just discussed a few minutes ago, there's a, an anxiety and an agitation building up and we want to deliberately relax you by adding a drug that gives some relaxation to what's happening to you. It seems that what you're saying is that the drugs smooth out the bumps in the road, but the road was always there. And certainly they can be very useful. I also think that once the driver goes in when somebody is dying, like you said, it does calm them down. So just from a practical point of view, I think, and I don't know if you agree with this, Catherine, but if you're going to say anything to your loved one, maybe say it before the driver goes in. Do you think that's sensible? I think it's really sensible that we always check when when medications are going to be changed, even if they're not in a syringe driver. You know, if somebody comes and has a look at this dying person and says, actually, do you know what, they're a bit uncomfortable, I'm going to change their level of painkillers or I'm going to give them a new anti-nausea agent, always to say, is there any possibility that what you're about to do could be more sensitive than what they're already taking? Anybody who's ever taken travel sickness pills will know that you feel a bit spacey and sleepy when you take them, even though they're not supposed to be sedative. They just do that as a kind of side effect. Always try to have conversations before a medication change. And I think maybe one of the most important times is if a person is in crisis at home and they get admitted to hospital. It's quite possible the hospital will say, what, what on earth is going on? Is this person um, suddenly developing, I don't know, an abscess somewhere or are they having a stroke or whatever? We need to do a scan. They need to lie still in the scanner. We're going to have to sedate them for them to have the scan. I really appeal to doctors and nurses to pause at that point and say, could this be the last time that this person's going to be fully conscious? Is the family here? Do they just need 10 minutes? to say the important things to each other before we give this sedative injection or change this tablet to a different tablet that could be more sedating or whatever. Prescribers need to think about it and families need to ask about it as well because what a tragedy to miss the opportunity to have that conversation that matters. talk a little bit about sort of practical things that might help a person feel more comfortable as they're dying wherever you are you mentioned music I played some Italian songs to my mum I sang her some nursery rhymes which she recognized which she used to sing to us and to my husband Vaseline or some sort of lip salve although I think you're not meant to use that if you're on oxygen I don't know if that's right but things like that any of those sorts of things that people could think about that might make the person who's dying more comfortable yeah. or at the very least the loved one watching make, helps them feel like they're making them more comfortable. Yeah. So both of those things really matter, don't they? So if your person is using oxygen through a mask, then they've got like a little breeze blowing possibly up their nose and through their mouth all the time. And it's so drying. Or they're just 
not always fully awake and then mouth breathing when the mouth gets really, really dry. So mouth care, really, really important. The nurses will provide a kind of antiseptic mouthwash thing. Blech. Tastes all rightish, but there's no reason that it should be that liquid. If you would rather have sherry with a bit of lemonade in it or whiskey and soda or gin and tonic in your mouth tray instead, that's also okay. Being able to chew a little bit of soft ice is really important. Now, it's really hard to get soft ice, isn't it? Ice cubes are like bullets. But if you freeze something fizzy, like tonic water or lemonade or ginger beer, then the bubbles make it much softer and crackier when it goes in your mouth. So just you just pour them in, the, in your um, ice cube tray in your freezer and then when you get them out you can mash them up a little bit and give give the person a little bit of frozen lemonade or frozen tonic water on a spoon and it's really really refreshing you can freeze those bubbly things with a little bit of alcohol in them as well if you want to if that's what they like mm -hmm. but remember that alcohol is an antifreeze so it has to be really really dilute gin and tonic or really really dilute mm -hmm. whiskey and soda so thinking about the person's mouth is it moist is it comfortable check every now and again that their tongue isn't red and sore or they haven't got those little white spots on, on their gums or inside their cheeks that say that they've got thrush because there were really good thrush treatments you can use even when the person isn't very conscious just to help their mouth to be comfortable so the the moisturizing the inside of the mouth cleaning their teeth uh, if they've got false teeth take them out scrub them steep them put them back in if they've got their own teeth then get a little soft toothbrush and give them a little brush with some toothpaste just makes your mouth feel fresh and comfortable again and then you're right thinking about lips vaseline or other lip salves that there's a worry about vaseline because it's petroleum jelly and oxygen obviously would be a, a kind of a, an inflammatory com combination but I, I would think as long as nobody's smoking in the room or lighting incense sticks which might be thing you'd want to do should be okay but there are lots of other lip salves on the market as well as vaseline so mouth inside the nose also gets dry and sometimes rubbing a little bit of lip salve or vaseline around the nostrils and up inside just makes everything a little bit smoother and more comfortable people who are at last stages of dying as their muscles relax something that we're often not expecting is the face muscles relax and we start to see the plumpness of the cheeks flattens out and the mouth hangs open because the jaw is really relaxed. And the eyelids start to open because it takes a lot of muscles to close your eyelids. So people can have partially open eyes. People go, oh, are they awake? Are they listening? What's going on? No, it's just that they're so relaxed now that their eyes aren't completely closed, which means that their eyelids and their eyelashes aren't protecting the whole eyeball anymore. So again, the eyes might get dry and might need eye drops just to stop them from feeling irritated. Just drop the eye drops in the corner of the eye, massage the eyelids up and down a couple of times. It won't be uncomfortable to the person, but it will help their eyes to be properly moisturised. The feeling of somebody just very gently combing your hair and making sure that your, your scalp is stimulated and that soft feeling. For some people, that's really nice. Other people hate the idea of other people touching their heads. So this is one of those conversations to have in advance. Dry hands, chapped cuticles. If you can get 
hand cream and massage the person's hands and their forearms all the way up to their elbows. Same with their feet around their uh, nails. If you're massaging people's feet, do it really firmly because otherwise it will tickle and that's uncomfortable. Feet all the way up to the knees, hands all the way up to the elbows. And what's that doing? Well, it's soothing if you're using long, firm, confident, calming strokes and you're talking to them at the same time. It's all just keeping contact, keeping the room calm, keeping everybody in the room calm. The comfortable position to be in in bed. Some of us are side liars or front liars and we will be placed on our backs by people who don't know any better. So if the person normally would sleep on their side and needs to hug a pillow or a cushion to do that, let's let them do that. Let's remember to just check that their ear isn't folded against the pillow. That could be really uncomfortable. So once you've got them against the pillow, just slide your hand gently under their head to make sure that their ear is in a comfortable position putting little cushions between the knees or between the ankles if a person's lying on their side so you haven't got bone and skin pressing against bone and skin. Thinking about are there wrinkles in the bed sheets? Are there wrinkles in their pyjamas or nighty? Again, that could be really, really irritating or crumbs in the bed if they're habitual toast eaters in bed or biscuit eaters or the grandchildren have been in eating biscuits. So just making sure that the bed sheets are smooth, are pulled tight, that everything is smooth. And then thinking about what temperature does this person like to be? Is this a person who's always had hot water bottles? Then let's keep going with hot water bottles. Remember, hot water bottles should feel just hot to the touch and not really, really hot to the touch because we don't want to burn somebody who can't move away from the heat of it. Or sometimes we use heat pads, which have got more controlled temperature to them. Whereas if you're somebody like me who can't bear to be hot, might only want to have a sheet rather than a duvet over them. Let's remember who this person has always been and treat them the way they have always liked to be treated. From the top of their head with grooming their hair, grooming their brows. One of my best friends made me promise that I would pluck any hairs from her chin if they grew as she was dying from her cancer. Uh, because it was important to her. And in fact, she and her daughter's and I would, were, were laughing about it around the bed. Is, is, that one, is that one long enough yet that we think we should pluck it? Because we knew that's what she wanted. And it, it gave us kind of permission to think mm. about it and also to laugh about it with her, alongside her. So just thinking about what soothes and calms and then taste. person might no longer be able to swallow, but do they have favourite tastes? tiny taste of something just perfect on the tip of a spoon can just be the thing that makes all the difference. Those are some really good tips Catherine thank you. We also got when my mum was um, pretty immobile and still sit in a chair I got her a really big sheepskin because she'd always told me that sheepskin are really good because they avoid pressure points and actually when she was in her hospital bed we were there all night I found the sheepskin really comforting myself and just a sort of quite a small thing. It made a difference. It was comfortable. It was warm. It was cozy and it just gave me a little bit of sucker. Just to sort of summarise, really, if there's the choice about where you'd like your loved one to die or where they'd like to die, things to think about are basically what care do they need? What equipment might they need? Where is it possible to get that? 
look at continuity of care as well. Again, like I said, that can become very important in the last few days. Visitors, we've spoken about, can, you know, do you want people to come? Is it easy for them to come? Is there somewhere for them to sit if you're at home or in a hospital? And maybe look at end-of-life doulas as well. Almost like a sort of really knowledgeable best friend who can come in and kind of be there for you and the dying person and can reassure you. Think about medications and how easy it is to get them if your loved one is in a hospital. That's all looked after for you. So really kind of think from the person out what they might need where the best place for them and then really do your research you know ring up the local hospice try and get some intel what's the hospice at home care like if you're going to need a private carer do you know some care agencies do they have people try and do as much work as you can really because when the time comes it can be really distressing and if you're not comfortable doing that maybe get someone that you know because people often want to help so see if there's someone that you could say could you ring that person so really do your research and think about the person and then radiate outwards from what they might need to what the people around you might need because you kind of only get one go at this don't you you absolutely do and then I would say at the very end of all of that when you've decided what you wanted to do, you've done your absolute level best to deliver it and then something happens and it all gets tipped up and you end up not in the place you would have chosen. Remember this. There's a wonderful piece of research that shows that at the very end of life, in the end, it really doesn't matter where the bed is. What matters is the people who are around the bed that in the end, it's the people who matter to us most and being able to be surrounded by their care and their love as much as we would need to be, which for some of us is hearing their voices around and feeling their touch. And for others of us is knowing that they're in the next room, but they're giving us the time and the space and the privacy that has always been the way we'd like to live our lives. So it's not really so important where the person is so much as that they know that you are at the side of them as much as they would want you to be. That's a a lovely image to finish off on. Thank you very much. Just before we say goodbye, are you working on any other books? Yes, I've been thinking about the idea of regret and about how people get to the end of their lives and have made sense of difficult things that have happened or unwise things that they did earlier on in their lives and how much more peaceful those people are when they're doing their kind of end of life review and getting themselves ready to die if instead of still being full of fury and blame and anger or shame and and guilt and self-recrimination they've done the processing that allows them to get to a place where yeah of course they still wish that thing hadn't happened but instead of it being those huge inflammatory difficult emotions It's that sense of regret that's almost like the safe harbour you get to from the ocean of other emotions that you've been through on the way. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I try and think about things so carefully is that I think regret is a horrible emotion thing to feel. And I think that if you've really thought about something, you may get curveballs. Things may not end up quite as you would have liked, but you have at least thought about it. And I think and I hope that this podcast gives people the opportunity so dr Catherine mannix thank you very much thank you very much
Thanks again to Dr. Catherine Mannix. If you'd like to learn more about Catherine and her work, you can go to her website, www.catherinemannix.com, and I'll put all relevant links in the episode description. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The artwork is by Lo Cole, and our music composer is Toby Dunham. If you'd like to read my column in The Guardian, it's every week in the Saturday magazine. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.